Now, last uh, week I was down in Christchurch and Dunedin at the Baptist Hui, which is a gathering for Baptist pastors in New Zealand. It's uh, a time where there's a certain amount of reflection and vision casting, and um, some of the statistics about the Baptist Union of New Zealand aren't exactly that exciting. For the 13th year in a row, the numbers of people attending Baptist churches on a Sunday morning has declined. And for the third year in a row, we have, the number of baptisms in a year have been the lowest ever. So three years ago, they were the lowest ever, and then they got lower the year, last year, and they're even lower this year. 81% of the Baptist churches in New Zealand have a congregation on a Sunday morning of less than 200 people. So things are not looking good. And when you look at those trends, uh, you're thinking, what is going wrong? And I'm quite interested in trends. And so there's a, a little model here I want us to look at. Often we go through cycles in, in life. We're on this journey where... Um, it may be an individual journey or it may be a journey as a church or even a denomination. And in uh, Revelation, there are letters to the churches in Revelation and one of the churches is accused of forgetting or losing their first love for God. And so often it's a bit like a um, maybe a marriage relationship or a courtship experience where you fall in love and you're really, I'm still waiting for a, a PowerPoint. Here we go. Yeah. So in our walk with God, we often go along this journey. We have faith in God, and because we know God and we trust God, we have courage. We have freedom in Christ. God blesses us. We have abundance. But because we have abundance, we can also become quite lazy because we have leisure time. And we can accumulate that abundance and that can lead to selfishness. And because we have everything that we want, we can become complacent, apathetic and dependent on other people, be it government or family. And that leads to weakness. And because of that weakness, if you look at the, the Jewish civilization, they would go through this cycle in the book of Judges, you would have uh, one leader who would um, seek the Lord and the Lord would bless the land. But then when they became apathetic, they would go into this state of, of decline. So let's, if we start um, at uh, 10 o'clock on the clock, where Israel is at peace, and then Israel forgets about God, Israel does evil in God's sight and goes toward idols and idolatry. And so God allows a neighbouring enemy to attack and to conquer Israel. And so Israel becomes slaves. They get taken into captivity and they're oppressed. And so in their captivity, they cry out to God and God hears their cry. And he raises up a deliverer, a new leader. And that new leader rallies the people together. 
and they fight and they overcome their enemy and they're delivered from captivity and then they go into this place of peace again. But then the cycle repeats itself. The cycle goes round and round. We can just go back to the, the previous slide. So we see invasion, bondage, cry out to the Lord, then a deliverer, then faith in God, then courage, and then it happens again. So the question is, where are we in this cycle? Where are we as a church in this cycle? Where are we as individuals in this cycle? Have we lost our first love? Have we lost our enthusiasm? Have we become apathetic? After the hui in Christchurch, I went down to, Helen and I went down to Dunedin, where both of us had grown up. And it's interesting going back to a place that you haven't been to for a while. Uh, I hadn't been there for 17 years, but when I grew up in Dunedin, I lived there for 19 years. And it was interesting visiting some of the churches in Dunedin. Now, if you are from Dunedin, that is First Church, First Presbyterian Church in Dunedin. And recently, because of earthquake risk, they had to rebuild that steeple. And it cost millions of dollars. The church was built 150 years ago. Imagine the technology and the expertise to build a church like that back then. And Dunedin was founded by free Presbyterians. There was a time in, in uh, Scotland where the church was being controlled by the state. And some of the pastors got together and they said, no, we've got to be faithful to God's word. We've got to, to preach the truth of God's word. And so they stepped away from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and became known as the Free Presbyterian Church. Many of those guys, they gave up their churches, they gave up their salaries, and they started afresh, but they had God on their side. And many of them came to New Zealand. And Dunedin is based on Edinburgh, and the, it was a very large Scottish settlement. And so among the Presbyterians in New Zealand, Otago and Southland were a lot more evangelical than most Presbyterians in this country. And the church flourished. It really thrived. And so in this church, if you go to the back of the church, they've got a museum. And uh, the first pastor of this church, his name was Thomas Burns. Now, if you go to Dunedin, the central, central point is the octagon, and outside the town hall, there is a statue of Robbie Burns, who was a Scottish poet. Thomas Burns was Robbie Burns' nephew, and he was the first pastor of this church. Now, that church holds four to 500 people, and you could imagine that in the day, that was full of people. Amazing acoustics, pipe organ, the works. I spoke to the lady in the museum and she said, on a cold, wintry Dunedin morning, they can get as few as 40 people coming to that majestic church. Then I went on to St. Paul's Cathedral, which is another 
amazingly beautiful church. And the story was the same, that the attendance has diminished and on a cold, wet Sunday morning, there could be as few as 40 people in that church. The journey of the Presbyterian Church wasn't helped by a professor at Knox College, which is the theological college of Otago University. This man was called Lloyd Gearing, and he denied the virgin birth. Here he is, a lecturer at a theological college, and liberalism came into the Presbyterian Church, and as a result, there has been a massive decline amongst Presbyterian churches in this country. And at the time when evangelical, Bible-believing Presbyterians were disillusioned, many of them came over to the Baptist Church. And so when many of the mainline churches were in decline, the Baptist Church was growing because we were still in the middle uh, theologically and so people were coming to us but it was more transfer growth rather than through baptism but now the Baptist church has gone into decline and so we need to analyse these diagrams and we need to say what's going wrong how do we arrest this cycle a few weeks ago at Revive on a Sunday evening and at our senior service, we discussed the church in Laodicea. Now in Revelation chapter 3 and 4, Jesus wrote letters to seven different churches and John wrote down what Jesus or the Holy Spirit was telling him to write. And, I, and, and at our revived session, we felt that the church of Laodicea best described the Western church today. And so I want to look particularly at this this morning. We won't read the full passage, but I will refer to different verses as I come to them. Now, Laodicea was a, a wealthy banking and commercial centre, and it's located in Turkey today, or the ruins are. It was considered to be one of the richest cities in the world at that time. The church was respectable and had all the comforts of the day, but this had produced apathy in the things of God. Their situation is summed up in verse 15, where it says, I know you inside and out, and find little to my liking. You're not hot, you're not cold. Far better to be cold or hot. You're stale, you're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. It's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Imagine if, if he said that about our church. He might. So this city of Laodicea, it had major problems with its water supply. It had no natural source of water nearby. And so water was piped into the city from springs. The first water was geothermal water, and it was piped for 11 kilometres. But by the time it reached Laodicea, the water was lukewarm and dirty because it was transported via an aqueduct. 
Other water came from cold springs in a place called Colossi. But it had to be transported 16 kilometres by aqueduct. And during that journey, it heated up. So it was also lukewarm and not very nice to drink. So Jesus used this water to illustrate the spiritual problem in the church. The water was not suitable for drinking. Those who drank that water wanted to vomit. You wouldn't want to drink that water at Debrett's, would you? And so Jesus was telling the believers that they were not what he desired. He was saying, I want to be refreshed by you, but you remind me of the water that you complain about. You make me want to vomit. Their wealth and self-sufficiency had caused them to become complacent. And Jesus said in verse 17, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And I don't need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. These people were self-centred. They were full of their own ability. They were confident in their riches. Jesus was saying, if you think you're rich, take a look at me. I own all the beasts in the fields. I put the stars in space. In comparison to the one who owns the whole universe, these people were wretched, poor, miserable, and blind. Even today, some believers feel that they're superior, while others are apathetic and complacent. And so God's blessings can actually become a blockage to our need to seriously seek the will of God. John Wesley expressed it like this. He said, I don't see how it's possible for any revival to continue for long. For true religion produces hard work and thrift, which produces wealth. But wealth in turn produces a love for the world and all its branches. The love of money is a successful weapon that Satan can use against believers. Money in itself is not evil. It's not necessarily sinful to be wealthy. Money is neutral. It can be used for both good or evil. But when we begin to love money more than God, we get caught in Satan's trap. And Paul warns about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Derek Prince also wrote on this topic. Now, there was a time when Derek Prince was what you may call a prosperity teacher. He says, In my own ministry, I have often taught on God's plan to prosper believers 
who are committed to the purposes of his kingdom. Yet, looking back now, I regret any occasion on which I taught this message without balancing it with Paul's warning here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In my mind's eye, I picture believers who have succumbed to the love of money as people who have taken a sharp poison dagger and plunged it into their flesh. So God can bless us, but if those blessings cause us to grow cold in our faith, they're not really blessings at all. Tim Keller wrote the, the following. Many of us have a middle-class spirit. Now, generally, Baptist churches are regarded as being middle-class. Yes, we want Jesus to redeem us from our sins and give us eternal life, but we're hardly dependent on him. We don't need to be. We've got our valuable assets and bank accounts. When the car breaks down, we get it fixed. When we get tired of our furniture, we buy new furniture. Are we depending on God or the idol of our own affluence? I suspect the latter. I have to admit that as hard as I try, I have many, many idols. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the same system. It's a product of our society today. And I include myself as having difficulties in this area. Have a look at Galatians 6 verses 8 to 10, 6 to 10, which actually fits in with our teaching on the Holy Spirit. It says, don't be misled. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. You will always reap what you sow. Those who live only to satisfy their evil desire, their sinful desires, will harvest the consequences of decay and death. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Don't get tired of doing what is good. Don't get discouraged and give up. For we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to our Christian brothers and sisters. You know, many people come to Jesus during a time of crisis. Think back on your own situation. You accept Jesus during a time of major upheaval in your life. Maybe it's a difficult marriage or a business failure, an emotional crisis. We may view our blessings as a sign of God's approval, yet be blind to our real spiritual condition. We may look down on other people who are struggling and think that they are inferior. Yet when it comes to spiritual power, Christ-like character and a deep, sustained faith and a willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ, we're often greatly inferior. In developing countries, there are pastors with very little theological training who are exercising great spiritual authority. They're doing the signs and wonders that are recorded in the book of Acts. It's important to examine our dependence on the Holy Spirit 
and to humble ourselves? Do you have a childlike dependence on God? Do you start each day with an earnest desire to walk in the power and in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Because no amount of wealth can replace the true blessing of being at the centre of God's will. No amount of assets indicate true wealth or power in a church. That's why Jesus told these wealthy, apathetic believers in Laodicea to buy from me refined gold so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and ointment to put on your eyes so that you can see. Gold refined in the fire emerges under the heat of serious testing. Don't think that if you're going through trials, you're not being blessed. Don't think that if you're going through difficulties, that means that God's not blessing you and God's left you on your own. Let's read about trials from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, These trials are only to test your faith. Okay, God knows that if things are too easy, we get apathetic. And so God is with us in the trials. They're to test our faith, to show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being, being tried by fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. God doesn't want us to get lazy and complacent. He doesn't want us to be so blessed that we sit back and eat, drink and be merry and just do whatever we want. He wants us to be on the cutting edge of his kingdom. He wants to bring the lost into his kingdom. We go to great lengths these days to avoid any type of difficulty. We reject anything that looks too difficult. Why climb a mountain when you can live in comfort in the valley? We choose to live safely. We take very few risks. We put little on the line. We have little need for faith or divine intervention. We've got it all covered, or so we think. Sometimes we get ambushed. Something comes at us out of left field and we think, what's going on? Where did it come from? Verse 19 and 20. I am the one who corrects and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. Jesus promises an intimate relationship to believers who overcome apathy and self-sufficiency. And so this, mor this morning I urge you to focus your attention on the presence of Christ. 
Jesus himself went through a refining process on the cross. He didn't need to do this because he was without sin. But he did it for you and for me. We buy gold from him. Gold that has already been purified in the fire. And he can give us that ointment for our spiritual eyes that will give us 2020 insight. 60 years ago, Francis Schaeffer, a modern-day prophet back then, warned that we were heading for a day when the preoccupation of evangelicals would be personal peace and affluence. Okay, that's the aim and objective of most people in society today. And then Scott Smith said, our culture has given birth to a church generation of consumer-driven churches who compete with each other like fast food restaurants. We desperately need revival in the church. So revival begins in our individual hearts. Or have we settled for a safe and powerless faith? A faith that takes no risks and requires little in the way of sacrifice. Because our God is a risk taker. He sent his only son into a world that had rejected his offer of friendship. Jesus knew that crucifixion, the most painful death possible, lay ahead for him. But do we just add, do we just regard Jesus as an add-on to our self-centered life? The insurance policy that means that when we've enjoyed this place, we go to an even better place in heaven. The Holy Spirit offers us gifts to equip and to empower his church. He says, come and buy gold from me and precious gifts from the Holy Spirit this morning. Embark on a life that's fulfilling and life-changing. Present yourself to Jesus this morning with the trust of a small child. Those little children, they love their parents. They idolise their parents. And they want to please him. And that's how God wants us to be with him. To listen to him, hear what he's saying, and jump to respond and obey. So this passage ends with Jesus standing at the door of their church. Verse 20. And yet they had the audacity to say, we need nothing. Yet they'd locked Jesus, the very source of everything, out of the church. They were so full of self-importance that they didn't realise that the Lord wasn't among them. The handle is on the inside of the door. Jesus won't force his way in. The king of the universe offers this naked, conceited, blind, hopeless church the right to sit with him on his throne. Jesus made promises to all those seven churches, but that's the greatest promise of all, to sit with him on the throne. What a gracious, merciful God we serve. So, where are we at this morning? Individually and as a church. 
Are we just a sort of happy social club? Or do we really have a passion for the things of God? Do we really realise that the truth of God's word is the answer to the needs of our society today? To the needs of individuals that are struggling in this life? I want us to close this message by praying a prayer together. We're going to put it on the screen, but I only want you to pray this if you agree with it. Don't pray it out of obligation or anything like that. But let's just stand, and those that want to, let's pray this prayer together. All together. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life this morning to take full control. Bring about your will in my life. Transform my character into your character. Wake me up to the realities of life around me. Lord, I desire to trust you with a childlike simplicity. Lord, we open the door of our church and welcome you to come in. Come and fellowship with us and lead us into truth and into all that you have for us. Amen.